This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for February 11th, 2019. We're back to healthcare. It's hard to get away from healthcare, but in this show, I'm talking to someone who has years of experience advising and consulting on how it can and can't be reformed. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. That's coming up in a minute, but first I want to say thanks to Ayomida Olubenge and Christopher S. for signing up as patrons on Patreon since the last podcast. I really appreciate that. And if you can do the same, sign up to donate a couple of bucks per podcast or per month. I can promise you that'll go towards allowing us to put more work into researching and producing the podcast. I'll give details on how you can do that towards the end of the podcast. I was reading a piece called Unholy Alliance, Why Do Left-Wing Americans Support Right-Wing Muslims? by Yasmin Mohammed. She's a former Muslim who, in her own words, ran away from the religious far-right world in which she was raised and made her way left towards values like gender equality, free speech and LGBT rights. And she continued... Now, try to imagine the shock, betrayal and sadness I feel seeing fellow liberals celebrating right-wing conservative aspects of Islam. On February 1st, I was so upset over World Hijab Day that I spent the day in bed with a migraine. Hijab Day. Is there a Mormon underwear day? What about a chastity belt day? I risked my life and my daughter's life to escape from the darkness into the light only to find the light celebrating and fetishizing darkness. That's what she said, and I think she has a point. I know that many Muslim women want to wear the hijab and do so without harassment, but for many others, it's a symbol of oppression and submission. And let's be real here, for many women, it's a bit of both. Now, I can sympathise with the feeling that women who don't want to leave the hijab behind or don't want to do that yet, they shouldn't be victimised. They shouldn't be treated badly on that basis and them wearing the hijab shouldn't be used as a proxy, an excuse for racist or ethnic victimisation. So, yes, defend the right of people to wear silly religious garb if they want to do that and it doesn't restrict the rights of others. But there's a whole world of difference between that and saying that wearing the hijab is a good thing, that it should be encouraged and celebrated. Sure, some women in the West wear the hijab because they were brought up with it and they wouldn't be comfortable going out without it, and to an extent that's their choice. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the hijab springs from a virginity hysteria in the deeply misogynistic culture that it comes from. Yasmin Mohammed is right that it is absolutely absurd for American liberals to be supporting it, or any other of the Bronze Age traditions that make up Sharia law. But they aren't the only ones being hypocritical. 
Let's look at many of the people who are setting themselves up, who are the loudest about keeping the evil influence of Islam out of the West. The Breitbarts and the Tommy Robinsons, the Nathan Demigos and the Black Pigeon Speaks, and all the alt and not so alt-right. Why do they want to do that? To preserve Western values, that's why. To defend the Enlightenment. The only problem with that is that the people who are so anxious to keep out Muslims for the sake of Western values and the Enlightenment are the same people who care least about Western values and the Enlightenment. Between them, they've attacked everything from due process and the rule of law to religious freedom, universal suffrage and democracy, and every individual liberty that has made the Western world what it is. There's an awful lot of hypocrisy out there. I can understand Yasmin Muhammad being disappointed with otherwise liberals doing the apologetics for the equivalent of the Westboro Baptist Church. And I hate having to make the choice. But when I do have to make the choice between silly liberals being too tolerant of a totalitarian religion on one hand, and on the other hand, knuckleheads with keyboards dressing up their racism as concern for something that I'm actually concerned about. I hate having to make that choice, but I think I'd tip the balance in favour of people believing in freedom and getting it wrong sometimes, rather than people believing in totalitarianism and getting it wrong sometimes. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On the line now, I have David Intercasso. He's a healthcare policy consultant based in Washington, D.C. He's worked for the House Majority Leader, Steny Hoyer, when he was the House Majority Leader at, and at the Department of Health and Human Services. And he's consulted for the American Heart Association, the American Public Health Association, and the United Health Group. And he's also taught as an adjunct professor at the University of Chicago and George Washington University. Um, David, the issue of Medicare for all has come storming onto the political scene. What do you think of it? Sure, thank you. Uh, good question. The reasons why proponents are arguing is because our system uh, has failed in numerous ways, least of which is there a significant percent or a number of Americans who have no health care insurance right now. That's about 30 million. So that's uh, 30 million of those under the age of 65 or who are not uh, eligible mm -hmm. uh, for the current Medicare program. Um, so the idea would be this is by way of having universal health care. Mm -hmm. um, it would be single payer. The government would pay uh, providers uh, and they would likely be uh, for-profit private uh, uh, companies. So mm -hmm. we wouldn't lose the private sector probably saw uh, Senator Harris, who announced her presidential campaign, said in some ways implied, although evidently she didn't mean it specifically, that would get rid of commercial insurance, although I think that's unlikely. But the idea would be if we had Medicare for all, A, everyone would be covered, and because we'd have one payer, it would be more spending efficient because right now we spend a substantial uh, percent of the Medicare uh, dollar on administrative costs, which were largely wasteful, and they are as high as they are because we have so many different providers 
it's uh, very administratively burdensome, and we know the Medicare and Medicare programs as they're run are extremely more efficient, spending efficient from an administrative perspective. Is this really a quick and dirty way of moving the U.S. healthcare system into something that approximates to, that has some sort of semblance to the Western European system where you pretty much have state-provided healthcare available to everybody? Absolutely. In fact, we're the only highly developed uh, industrialized country in the world that does not have universal coverage. Um, so it's it's hard to believe or fathom how it is that every other highly developed, say, OECD country can do this mm-hmm. and we're unable. It's beyond uh, understanding or explanation. Now, of course, how we do it, how we do it matters, and that's where likely, if we get down the road, where the fight's really going to be had, you know, exactly how we do it. Okay. In the UK, they probably have the most socialized system in the sense that pretty much all hospitals are owned by the state. Doctors, nurses, all the various staff are state employees. The NHS, the National Health Service, has is one of the biggest employers in the world. It has about a million employees. But as I see what, what people are talking about Medicare for all, is they're sort of saying that the government would pay, but they would contract out the uh, the provision of services so you wouldn't really have um, doctors being state employed. They would be still empo- employed by private entities and hospitals would be uh, private entities. Are you sure that you would get rid of all those extra costs that Americans are paying for health care if you still had all those private companies in the system? Well, they would have to become more efficient because, again, there'd be no variation in reimbursement. So right now, of course, Medicare pays through, say, DRGs, uh, uh, prospective payment to hospitals. Um, hospitals are able to negotiate with commercial or private payers, you know, two, three hundred percent of Medicare. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get great variation in spending or the amounts uh, reimbursed. Uh, that mm-hmm. would all go away. Um, so if a commercial plan wanted a contract with the federal government and um, uh, be paid, they'd all get paid the same. They in turn would hire um, you know, their, their, ne- their network of clinicians. You'd see your, you, more uniformity uh, in their salaries. Yeah, but pause, pause on that, pause on that for a minute, David, because clearly the theory here is, is, is fairly reasonable that the, if you've got a big purchaser, they have more purchasing power and they can negotiate a better deal with the supplier. But that doesn't always happen in reality with the government because, for example, you have, um, you know, military spending, which seems to be almost the model for this uh, Medicare for All, that the government pays huge amounts of money in order for uh, private companies to supply in one case, military hard care, in the other case, health care, there's no real evidence that the government gets very good, uh, gets very good value for money when they're buying military hard care, hardware. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that they don't. Are you sure that the government has the skill set to use that negotiating power? Well, first, let me back up on the NHS. So there is a fair amount of uh, private commercial 
participants in uh, UK healthcare. So, for example, Spire Hospitals. But that aside, part of the part of you make a good point as it relates to analogizing to the military, and um, you know each industry has its own uniquenesses. Uh, the military, of course, certainly a high barrier to entry, right? I mean, not everyone can build a F-35 or whatever up to in fighter jet technology. So um, there's not a lot of competition. Uh, not too many firms can build these extremely high-tech. Uh, military weapons. Mm-hmm. Less the case uh, in healthcare. So I would think uh, it, it is a legitimate concern or worry, but I would say they're not exactly on on the same uh, comparative playing field. Uh, defense industry and and healthcare provisioning. Now maybe in some some extent, uh, when you get into you know a very um, uh, limited. Uh, specialties where where there aren't very many uh, clinicians with that training, but we're talking primary care, you know, nursing care, other uh, types of care provisioning. Um, I, I think there'd be a good deal uh, participants in competition. Okay. Um, one uh, podcast that I did about a year ago, I talked to a libertarian economist called Yaron Brook, and he was uh, very much against government-controlled healthcare. He, and he, he uh, was brave enough to go in front of a British audience and say that um, they should abolish the NHS. I don't think he was received terribly well. But one figure that I found when I was researching that was that clearly the people in the UK pay taxes, pay through their taxes for the NHS. So you can say it's free. It's free at the point of use, but clearly it costs money. And uh, people like Yaron Brook will say, well, yeah, you're going to pay a lot more taxes if you want this. In fact, the people in the US pay a larger percentage of their taxes towards government-provided health care, notwithstanding all the private insurance they pay, they pay more just in their taxes than people in the UK do. That's a startling figure, and it indicates that really people in the US are being charged way, way more for the same thing than other people in the West. Are you sure that you can get those costs out of the system? Well, a couple things. Um, first of all, we we're at about a trillion five, a three uh, three trillion plus or three point five trillion annually, eighteen uh, odd percent of the GDP in healthcare expenditures. The reason I yeah, make actually, if I can if I can just clar- if I can just clarify that, yeah, the U.S. pays about eighteen percent in total of its GDP in healthcare, of which about half is or slightly under half is through taxation. In the UK, where right. very, very few people have private insurance, they just use the NHS, they pay about 7.5% of their GDP in taxes. That's to say less in ta- just less in taxes, uh, even despite the fact that they pay almost nothing in insurance. Most people uh, uh, would right. not have high, private, private insurance. So it's an enormous difference. Well, it is, and it's, it's easily explained in that in the U.S., Again, we're at 18% trillions of dollars, about a third of that. So think of it this way. Americans are forced to pay every year $1 trillion for health care that does not improve their health. Okay? It's waste. And what explains that? The system is overbuilt. It's, it's, 
is overcapitalized. We have too many hospitals. And why do we have too many hospitals? Because it's easy to make a profit. Second issue compared to the UK and the rest of Europe, although it's a bit different for primary care docs, but we, our physicians or clinicians, and this is not popular to say, but compared to uh, like countries, um, our physicians, particularly specialists, are paid uh, much higher uh, than their uh, colleagues overseas. Now, of course, the immediate response to that is they pay more uh, in liability insurance, although if you take that variable out, they're still um, uh, paid substantially more again. Um, it kind of goes against the uh, um, the accepted wisdom that private so the private sector is much more efficient than the government sector. Is there any particular reason why that maxim, which is usually true, but it doesn't seem to be true in healthcare? Do you know why that is? Profit. Uh, look at look at. Um, yeah, but if I was if I was selling lawnmowers or or um, any other product, I want to make a profit as well. Why why is it that? In the the private sector does so badly at delivering value for money. If I want to get a hamburger, you know, I can get it for very very cheap, and uh, I can right. have you, you, a great choice said, and and so right, forth. Right, 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 right. That's the difference. You can evaluate the consumer can generally, or all consumers can generally evaluate the quality or value of a hamburger. There's this is this goes back to Ken Arrow's infamous. December 1963 uh, essay about um, asymmetrical information and why healthcare is different. The average consumer in this country has no idea the value of healthcare. When, uh, when you say first, asymmetrical it's, information, it's, how, how, can you can you translate that into English for sure, the listeners? Sure, sure. Well, that's the phrase he used. So thank you for that. So basically, what he said, it's asymmetrical information, which is the physician has all the information, the patient has little or no information. So you go to buy a car, there's a lot of data online, you can make a reasonably informed purchasing decision. When you go to a hospital and you need a a certain surgical procedure, it's very complicated, you didn't go to medical school, you can't comparison shop because, again, although we're now requiring hospitals to post their uh, charges, we'll see how successful that is. But the bottom line is consumers cannot... Uh, they don't have the ability to, and you use the magic word value, mm-hmm. they're unable to determine or ascertain what provider gives or could provide them the highest value. Uh, outcomes achieved relative to spending is the definition of value. Mm-hmm. If you try to calculate that in healthcare in this country, good luck. It's almost impossible. I, for years, have argued in letter writing, uh, in comments and response to proposed rule for the Medicare program, that it needs to start, now it's not easy, but it needs to start measuring for value. And again, uh, the classic uh, definition, outcomes achieved relative to spending. Sure. So essentially, uh, how much money does it cost you to save one person with X type of cancer or whatever compared to some other country? But there are so many types of cancer and so many variables that it becomes impossible to measure that reliably. Well, it can, but let's just talk about high-cost, high-volume procedures and the classic in Medicare, hips and knees. Mm -hmm. We do a massive amount of hip and knee replacement surgeries in this country. Why? Well, because they're uh, uh, very profitable, and many of them, absent fracture, 
are what are called preference-sensitive conditions, meaning you go in to see a surgical um, orthopedist, and he says, they're having too much pain with that hip. Let me change it. You'll be, you know, you'll be up and playing tennis again. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a subjective decision. Um, those surgeries are, again, very profitable, but it's very difficult, if not impossible, for you. And keep in mind how many, uh, how many surgeons do these procedures. It's a vast number. You'd be hard-pressed to figure out which one produces the best outcomes. So, so you can work out because money, because money is, 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 is countable. You can work out who does it cheapest, but it's very difficult to work out who right. does it best. Well, it's, it's the ratio. I mean, should I pay twenty grand for the same pain I had before, or is it worth me to pay 30, pay 30 grand for, you know, relative to, say, patient-reported outcome measures for a substantially less pain, say, 90 days post-surgery? I, I'm losing the will to live already. I don't think I could even understand that much information. <laughs> well, the other issue is, think about it this way. How can you make a decision, these complicated uh, purchasing decisions, when you're lying on a gurney? And keep in mind also, most people who need serious mental uh, uh, medical care are seniors, right? Mm-hmm. Aged people tend to be uh, less well, less healthy. A third of Medicare beneficiaries are cognitively impaired. Mm-hmm. So what's their capacity uh, uh, to figure this out, little or none? And the the one other issue that strikes me as very um, relevant here that nobody's talking about, whether they're on the more free market side or on the more um, socializing the cost side, is that, and as one economist put it to me a while back, uh, said that if the price of a good goes down, the price of the resource that yields those goods goes up and down accordingly. And I said, I didn't understand that. And he said that if the price of gold goes up, the price of a gold mine goes up. There are gold mines operating in the US, which are essentially medical schools who charge and people coming out of those schools are typically hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And that's money that is filtered through various uh, pockets, but essentially comes out of the healthcare, uh, health insurance, and out of the uh, uh, state, uh, various state payments of the the Medicare and Medicaid. The bottom line is that a lot of people, if healthcare costs are to be are to be reduced, a lot of people are going to have to be told, "Sorry, you know, your nice little learner isn't going to be earning you very much money anymore." The industry. Uh, the profession, the the guild, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. uh, it's in their vested interest, obviously, to limit the supply mm-hmm. of clinicians. You know, it's basic economics. Um, not only that, in this country, we're unique in that physicians, clinicians, nurses, whomever, can practice anywhere they can uh, uh, receive a license. So we have a disproportionate number practicing in urban versus rural and, you know, the old, you know, Econ 101 uh, uh, supply-driven demand. Not surprisingly, you have vast spending in Florida Mm -hmm. because you have a vast supply of clinicians who all, of course, want a bill. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line is you want to get as large a risk pool as you can. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the other advantages. If you had every American in one risk pool, in theory, and from that perspective, you'd have as most efficient from a statistical perspective and a, and a per capita spending perspective as you can because you would equalize the pain 
uh, everyone would bear their share. And, and going back to the NHS, you probably know, of course, how did the National Health Service get created? It was after World War II. Mm-hmm. Everybody realized, well, look what we just did together, right? We survived, you know, what, 40,000 people died in the in the London bombings. Yes, um, yes. And there was a sense of, uh, of community uh, that, right, that sense drove of community, that. Right. And so, you know, with that thinking, they said we, as a group, it's a group activity. You know, we prize individualism, but... <laughs> that doesn't work when you're talking about insurance products. Okay, if, if no I might, if I might well, just repeat, if I might just try and repeat that um, in English, and you can tell me if I'm getting this right. The sure. bigger the risk pool. So, if you have health insurance, essentially that one insurance company, or more likely, they might divide it down into subcategories of groups of insured people. If you're in a pool with a whole load of old and sick people, then that right. the cost of that pool is going to go high. If you do something like the uh, uh, the individual mandate, you pull in lots of younger and healthier people who are paying premiums, but not really, uh, not really making very many you, claims right. because they're still quite healthy. That brings down the average right. cost for everyone. And if you make everybody, the whole nation, into one pool, then that averages that out across lifetimes, and it's also more uh, efficient in terms of administration. Am I getting that right? Right, and and I'll just add to this. The reason why you want young people who say, I shouldn't have to pay, or there's community rating and I'm paying too much, whatever, Mm -hmm. this this is one of those issues where we all succeed together or we all fail together. And the reality is, the way it works, and this is just a fact of life, you pay insurance when you're younger and you're not getting any value, back to value, because you're healthy, you're not consuming, you're not filing claims, right? You're the young invincible. But the equation flips when you get north of 50 mm-hmm. um, because now younger people are really floating uh, your consumption or paying for it. And it's the same idea with Social Security, Mm-hmm. And that is why the idea of if we don't get Medicare for all, we get a Medicare buy-in, which is to say if you're less than 65, you buy into the program, you pay cost, but you buy into the Medicare program. And it's good for the Medicare program because they get people younger than 65 who generally speaking statistically are healthier. And mm-hmm. again, you want as many healthy people in the pool as you can to offset the utilization of the smaller percentage who are less healthy. Okay. And um, we've gone through a lot of questions that are really quite technical about healthcare, but I know that you've worked on the Hill in, in Washington and, uh, you were a, a consultant in, uh, for, uh, Steny Hoyer, as I mentioned at the start. Mm-hmm. So leaving a, aside the economics, leaving aside the healthcare issues and looking just at the politics, do you think that right. there's a snowball's chance in hell of any of this happening even after 2020? Well, I think there's more of a chance. Uh, obviously, uh, after the next election, you know, we're at this, uh, you know, we're pushing 20% of the GDP. I mean, the pain um, in in what it costs to uh, manage a, 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 a healthcare system that is, is really largely failing mm-hmm. uh, from any perspective uh, you want to look at it or measure. So, um, you know, it's that old line that people change when uh, when uh, the pain uh, is is calculated to be greater than 
uh, well, you consume an item if the benefit ex- exceeds the pain in paying for it, right? Mm-hmm. So I think we'll come around to the conclusion that the benefit uh, offsets whatever political, ideological pain uh, or however it violates a person's political ideology. Um, and again, you know, we're, <laughs> there's so many variables. Beyond that, just the financing um, if you look at, say, the IOM report of 13, I think it was 2013, Sure Lives, Poor Health, mm-hmm. Americans are in horrible, at any age level, uh, in horrible health, generally speaking. Um, and for us to be successful in the long term, we, we can't continue to have as unhealthy a population. Um, it, it's just, it just cannot... Uh, cannot persist. David Intercasso, healthcare policy consultant and also uh, adjunct uh, professor at University of Chicago and George Washington University. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you, William. I appreciate it. Make your view heard. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com to set out your ideas and defend them on the next podcast. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while we're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at ChallengingO on Twitter, and follow David Intracastle at Healthcare Issue. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or topic for a future show. And as I said, thanks to Ayamida and Christopher and everyone else who has signed up as patrons on Patreon so far. I really appreciate that. It means I can devote more time to research and finding interesting guests. And if you could do the same as them and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, you'll find the link on the website. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, by phone, or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's February 18th, I'll be talking to Adam DeColibus, author of the novel Caravan. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. The assistant producer is Nick Albertson. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 